Welcome back, everyone, to the OGs. Dom Pogbia joined, as always, by Kyle Bunch. I was just joking. We don't have too much going on, but but Kyle reminds me I'll be going away next week, uh, hitting the great uh, Disney World, Walt Disney World. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that because I'm not a big amusement park guy, but when you got three girls who all think, well, one thinks she's a princess. We have to do that before she starts kindergarten. But Kyle, ever, ever been to Disney World versus Disneyland? Now we're, you know, I, uh, growing up in Southern California and actually fun fact, my parents both worked at Disneyland and that's where they met. So when I was a kid before Disney was the empire that it is, we'd still get to go to alumni nights and get to go to the park when it was just people who had worked there before. And you'd get this like, and then of course my dad ruined most of the rides for me by telling me all of the magic of like, that's not fire. It's cellophane with a red light on it. And that's the door in Pirates of the Caribbean where you could get out if somebody threw up in the, in the ride and all this stuff. So, uh, so we've done a lot of Disneyland. We similarly did probably around the same age, took my daughter, did the princess lunch, all of those things. And I think, I think on that moment, which probably shouldn't feels, feels reckless to say in this age, but, uh, we still have pictures. I was brutally ill, like, like solid flu. We'd flown out to California and I'm just like in that shaky state, but sort of like, I can't let my daughter go to Disneyland for the first time and I'm not there. So I, I soldiered my way through the day and hopefully didn't infect too many people with whatever awful flu I had. Uh, so that was my last trip to Disneyland. And listen, listen, if Jordan could get through the flu game, you could get through. <laughs> That's the exactly. Game. You know, I could, I could stand in line for the Matterhorn right. if he could, you know, pull that off and, and, right. you know, so yeah, so I've had my Disneyland experiences need to get back with all the Star Wars stuff that's opened up, but uh, never made the big trek to Disney World. So you've done it before though, right? Yeah, we, uh, we we kind of stagger them out. We said before the kids uh, go to kindergarten, we'll take them. So uh, we're on number three. So this is number three. Went when I was a kid. I think we were there at like the 15th anniversary or something or 15th birthday celebration at Disney World. Um, yeah, should be fun. I'm not a big, guy, uh, like I said, amusement park person. I think with the princess things, though, I, I don't think they have in the princess lunches or dinners or anything because of oh, yeah. the, the world. Uh, well, you heard another voice in there, and uh, you heard Chicago mention it's probably on purpose. Uh, we are joined by a father extraordinaire, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. But Ian Soane, thanks for joining us, Ian. Thank you for having me. Excited to see you guys. It's been a long time. Too long, too long. Probably a decade. That seems to be the, the default that we give everyone. More. <laughs> More. So Ian is president and chief client officer at Hawkeye. Uh, we'll have him talk a little bit about that. We knew him back when he was at uh, Ogilvy & Mather, um, was a guest at the Chicago, the first Chicago, one of three blogs of balls that we did over at Wrigley Field. You were a Sox fan, if I recall? That is an insult. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know that Chicago had two baseball teams. No, I'm a, uh, I'm a Cubs fan. I think that was part of the reason I came to that event was because it was at Wrigley. Um, uh, I do remember you had a hat on, right? I, it wasn't the Cubs hat, so it was probably that old school with the, the actual Cub on it. Was that yes, what it was? Yes, I have okay. upstairs, yes. Um, All right. And I was thinking about – so I think that was 2007. Does that sound right? No, we started in a, it was 09, 10, 2010, okay. 2010. And I believe now I could be, you know, this could be one of those things where I'm completely making it up. Like this is what I've made fun of my father his whole life. And now I do the same thing. I think, uh, a, uh, up and coming Sarah Spain was there. She was, if I recall correctly, 
I think Spencer Hall got iced. He did. If I recall uh, correctly. And uh, I was, yeah, I was just excited to be at Wrigley on a day where there wasn't a game. I thought it was great. I grew up right down the street from Wrigley. So I'm a, I'm a local kid. That, that one was, yes, we had those moments all set against a backdrop of somehow we had convinced P&G to be a major sponsor. So yes. there were like lockers with P&G, Old Gillette, Spice, right? and Gillette and all yes. this stuff right there. And then meanwhile, yeah, we've got like drinking happening in the Captain Morgan space. Yes. So there's like a big giant Captain Morgan statue. That was like... We knew we we had made it. I think that was at fun. that point, you know. The the other thing we brag about that one was uh, one of our main sponsors and our streaming partner was Justin TV, which was which is Twitch. And we say, hey, we were Twitch before Twitch was Twitch. So that's that's <laughs> and, our and, and other. And that was the away. one you said you found. You were searching for a clip of the like icing or something from that, and the <laughs> yeah. whole thing is online. It's like yeah. one of the first videos. On is it really? Twitch, like the yeah, there's a Twitch account. Twitch. There's a Blogs of Balls Twitch account that has all of our all of our paddles on there but getting back to this whole thing before you hopped on i'm like how the hell did we hook up and and kyle thinks he had something to do with it but you said you have you figured it out i think kyle maybe does have something to do with it although probably not as much as he thinks you know i (laughs) so so i worked at nokia from 2004 to 2007 or so and the reason that's relevant is because um rga was one of the agencies i worked for and I got to know Richard Ting, fly tip. And I got to know um, Noah Breyer. And um, somehow I feel like Ricky Engelberg was was somehow involved in that somehow. Um, and I think that is how I was introduced, probably Kyle, to you. Yeah. Got invited to the to the event in Chicago. I think that's how it all started. I, that sounds right. Like any of those are viable. Like definitely could remember, could see Ting. He spoke at the very first one. Like I could definitely see him connecting yeah. for whatever reason. Part of why I was thinking it was Noah, because I thought, I thought I might've reached out to him because he had a bears blog and was from Chicago and whatever. And I, so, but you're right. It could literally have been mm-hmm. any of those three, uh, three fine gentlemen, but all, all very fine gentlemen. I agree with that. Yes. Yes. And Kyle, I think you moderated Ian's panel. Is that correct? I mean, I think it was later in the day, so the, it gets a little blurry. Coverage <laughs> from Captain Morgan, but sounds right. Sounds okay, right. I'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to piece it together because there's always like, okay, here's sports, here's this, but we're always trying to merge in emerging technology as well as sort of business elements of sports media, particularly sports digital media. And do you even remember what you talked about? This, you're right. This is all a blur to me, Kyle. No <laughs> clue. I mean, the fact that I even remember this much is remarkable. <laughs> yeah. I, I, if it was mine, I the vague bits I have from mine were that Mike Germano was there. And that at some point I brought up, I brought, there was some question I had around when the NFL would part ways with direct TV, when we would be able to buy like direct to consumer streaming of the NFL, which people were very dismissive of. And here we are in the latest media deal. And while direct TV is out of the picture, the notion of buying direct to consumer NFL feels like a very far off distant notion given the hundred billion dollar huh. contract. So these are the little bits I remember. I, wow. I feel like, uh, and no offense, cause I love Mike Germano. I seem to remember my wife being like that one guy just talked all the time on your that's, panel. That's Mike. So, <laughs> you know, that, these are the like little, that's the only reason it really sticks in my head. And then, and then I've probably 
my guess is that one or two times I've run into you, Kyle, down at South by Southwest. I'm, I'm get that would be my guess. So, yes, we we saw. I remember you came to one of our one of our early parties when we had just opened here, right? Um, and it was again one of those later in the evening. So I was probably hair on fire a little bit, and then uh, <laughs> I feel like it was right. You probably showed up right around the time that somebody won't name names on our, not myself, I swear, on our, on the balcony of this too small venue where we were like shuffling people in and out, roasted a giant joint and just hot boxed the entire party. That sounds about right. Yeah. 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 South by, you know, I yeah, sort of right. should have just been implied at this That's point, right. but yeah. all right, well, let's get off the weed and get back to the business, shall we boys? Um, <laughs> hey, weed is big business in Illinois. <laughs> it, uh, everywhere, yeah, everywhere, exactly. everywhere, like everywhere. Hub, all these startups there, man. It's yeah. crazy. So Ian, tell us a little bit about your career. I'm, I'm laughing because we were speaking with somebody the other day who was also a political science major. Now that I'm seeing that you were an international relations guy, um, but you've made some big stops, certainly in the advertising marketing uh, space. Like you said, you're at Ogilvy and Matter. When we we met you, I see uh, Sapien Razorfish. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about how you got started uh, with your career itself. Yeah. So. Um after I graduated college, undergrad at University of Wisconsin, go Badgers, um, I moved I, and I did a few things. I chased a girl to London for a while. I skied for a year and delivered pizzas. Um, I finally got serious and I moved to New York um, with a really useful political science or international relations degree. Appreciate the choir, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I, through some family connections, I, I, I met somebody in the record, in the music business at Sony Music and landed a job in PR and marketing for Sony Music. That's how I started to kind of get into marketing. And Let's stop like, right there. What was, what was in college as an undergrad? What, what was your aspiration before you got to where you got? Uh, law school, maybe? To get to uh, law school, probably, <laughs> but also just to like graduate. Okay. To, to finish. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, law school was probably like the the logical end game, you know. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't married to it. I, I had no aspirations of being a lawyer, but it could have been a very I could have easily slipped into doing that. I could you know I could have seen that. Well, I said with the political uh, science degree, when it comes to PR, it certainly tells you how to bullshit. Like, that's I don't exactly think right. A- I mean, there was there was a point I will tell you. I remember it distinctly in college in undergrad. There was a point where I was like, maybe I want to be. Uh, like in the foreign service, you know, um, and may, which could maybe lead to a, a career in politics or maybe um, in television or whatever it was. And I was like, I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to join the Peace Corps. Like, I think that's what I'm going to do. This sounds awesome. And there was a meeting on campus and I went to this meeting and they laid out the qualification, like the, the, the qualifications to get accepted into the Peace Corps. And I walked out, I was like, well, there's no way. I, I mean, they're not going to take me. Like, so we're going to pivot immediately. Right? You, didn't even, you didn't even try it. You just walked you out and said, yeah, no, no, it's not going to work. I was so unqualified to be sent somewhere remote and do anything useful, I realized very quickly. Um, so I, I pivoted immediately off of, off of that. But, you know, like a lot of kids who are in their early 20s, uh, you know, I hadn't I hadn't decided I wanted to be a doctor or a writer or whatever this or that, and so I entered the world just kind of um, not directionless. I wasn't like lost, but just like I, you know, I, there was no specific vocation that I was interested in, 
And I fell into the music business and specifically to the marketing side of it um, and really enjoyed it uh, and met a lot of great people and, and, and got a lot of great experience at a young age. And uh, eventually I got my uh, master's, I got my MBA at NYU at Stern when I was living in New York and uh, worked for a couple small agencies. And then I went to work for Nokia, as we mentioned earlier. And then in 2007, my first kid was born and my now ex-wife, uh, wife at the time, her family was kind of scattered a bit. My family was in Chicago. So we moved back to Chicago. We left Manhattan. We moved back to Chicago. And that's when I really got into the kind of the big agency game. And I went to work at Ogilvy and Mather, which is when I met you guys, I think, um, which was my first kind of foray into the big agency world and, and a great place to cut your chops from an agency perspective. You really learn kind of the, the nuts and bolts of uh, uh, how brand agencies work. Uh, and, then, um, and then I went to um, uh, Razorfish after that, which went through a couple different name, um, Razorfish, Sapient Razorfish, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I then, I left to go to WPP, which for those of you who don't know, is one of the main holding companies in the advertising space. And I did a couple roles there. My last role was the global client lead for the Walgreens Boots business. Um, so I was leading that business globally. Uh, they're, they're based in, Walgreens is in Chicago. And so it was a natural fit. And then about six or seven months ago, I came back to Publicis Group, which again is another one of the big holding companies in the advertising space. Uh, which also owns Razorfish. And I took this job at Hawkeye as president and chief client officer. That was back on June 1 of 2020. And that's where I am now. So dump right into a new position. Actually, we were just talking with uh, Megan Huter, uh, who's spent some years uh, very similar to you in the, in the agency world and then started this new gig uh, during the world that we live in. How, how has that experience been for you? You know, it's it's so it's been challenging. I mean, I I know... I have met in person probably five people that I work with. I think that was her her main takeaway is it's hard trying to get to learn and know people that you're working with when you it, can't. It is. So there's people. there's a trade-off though, right? Because um, the the efficiency is tremendous actually, right? So in my first two weeks on the job, I took a trip to our London office our Dublin office, our San Francisco office, our Bangalore office. I mean, I, I traveled the world in two weeks. Again, efficiency is fantastic. The efficacy, though, takes a real hit. So I found, especially at the beginning, I had to have the same conversation with somebody multiple times. And I was like, why is it taking me? Why When I talk to Kyle, why is it taking me so long to kind of like, for, for what he's telling me to sink in. And what I realized was that the first time I was talking to Kyle, using you as an example, I'm not picking on you. First time I talked to Kyle, new colleague Kyle, I actually wasn't listening to what they were saying. I was watching body language and I was picking up on cues and I was registering their voice. Like I was like trying to like register their voice and like I was looking at their Zoom background and you know all this kind of stuff, stuff that in, in the real world, I think um, sinks in much faster. And so the first time was more just like taking them in as, in as a human being. And then I'd have to go back and be like, all right, I need you to repeat all the stuff you already told me. And now I'm going to listen to the actual words. 
And so that's, that was my, that was my experience. And it's, it's, um, it's actually helped me onboard new people who we've hired after me. I've been very sensitive to not overwhelming people with too much information at once, letting them kind of ease into the whole transition, the, the, this two-dimensional transition, um, and, and then hitting them with kind of important information and facts, et cetera. So how um, are but, you guys, how are you, and obviously in a, in a senior leadership role, how are you thinking about as things open up, what that future looks like? being in office out of like, have you, I, I feel like a lot of people are still formulating their plans, but where yeah, where, formulating and, and, you know, we've got, you know, Kyle, you, you can especially appreciate this. You know, we've got Hawkeye is going to have its own policy as an agency. Publicist group will have its policy as, as a group, which we will of course, you know, um, adhere to. Um, but there's a lot of different considerations based on who you are, what kind of agency you run, et cetera. We've talked a lot about it. We've we're we're kind of constantly surveying our people, both formally and informally, to see <coughs> what they want as time goes on. And I think it's no surprise, and I think it's it's probably fairly common across the board for a lot of different agencies and and industries. People don't want to go back to how it was, but they don't want it to stay how it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what does that look like? It's going to be more of a hybrid model. Um, it's going to be going into offices when there's a reason to versus making people go into offices to keep an eye on them. Um, for, in my case, as somebody who was traveling probably every other week for work, as I look back now on that life, not only that lifestyle, but the, the expense that goes along with that. It seems absurd. Yeah. It seems yeah. absurd to fly to Dallas for a two hour meeting. I mean, I can't, I, I don't think I could ever fathom that again. Right. Um, and so I think a lot of those behaviors will, will, will change. In fact, I'm sure they will. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same, same boat here. I mean, I was on the road and, and a lot of it was just going to headquarters in New York so that right. I could be in the room. And there, there's some of the benefit of being in the room with sure. those people. But but I, I spent years working from home prior to RGA. And then they were good enough to, when I was in New York and we were kind of only in New York to let me move down here and work remotely. And the hardest part would just be, you're the one person not in that room. And that's why, you know, but when suddenly no one's in the room, it, it does change. And there's, there's certainly pros and cons. I think the part I'm interested about, you know, you talk about the polling and surveying and how that continues to evolve and shift. And I remember just in the context of sports that early on, like the, the morning consult polls on return to stadium. And at one point it was like, I'm never going in a stadium again until it's at full capacity, or I'm never going into a stadium again, unless it's, you know, everyone is vaccinated. And then at some point it started to shift and it was like, oh man, like I would lick a subway pole if you'd let right. me back in the stadium right now, like I, whatever it takes. And, and, and it's, it's just going to be, it's going to be curious which things we, we tell ourselves like, oh, I don't really want that. Or, and then maybe over overcorrect the other way. And like, I, I'm just still fascinated to see what this summer looks like. I don't yeah, know. What, what I, I, know. I agree with you very much that when people ask me personally, not as, not as somebody who runs a company, but as just, Hey, what do you want, Ian? Um, I, I usually give some form of answer of like what you just said. Like, I just, I just want to see what the next couple months feels like. I have no idea how I'm going to feel 
yeah. six months from now. I have no idea. No clue. Yeah. No clue. And, and there's no reason for me to have to define that right now. Yeah, I, I think. And, I, you know, the feeling I have is like summer is going to be this overcorrection the other way. Yes. Like we're all going to kind of be going at, you know, one of the I was talking with somebody working in this sort of sports world of could this be a really interesting moment for baseball, who sometimes is like a lot of sports struggle to get a younger audience to right. like come out to games in the same way. Like if you're in your 20s now and a baseball stadium is one of the places where you can go in the sun and drink for three hours. Like that, might, there might be a whole bunch of people like screw it. Yeah. I don't even like baseball, but like, Hey, there's a whole campaign to be built around that right there. If somebody's right. take advantage of it. So, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I'm, I'm with you on like, what'll that look like through summer is probably going to be pretty different than by the time we get to fall and people are like, yeah, you know, as it's getting colder, I don't mind not, trudging right. into the office every day. Right. Like I, I liked it for the summer March and kind of getting out more and seeing people and, you know, sundresses everywhere and all the fun that comes with it. But it's funny you, know. you say that about, about Kyle, about come on now. I, sundresses. There's, there's like a rite of passage living in New York, right? Like you remember the, there's always that day where like everybody's wardrobe changed. And like, <laughs> you know, that is I, I, true. Yeah. I lived in New York for a long time. It's a real story, but I was thinking about what you said about baseball, you know, in Chicago opening day, is usually people kind of associate it with the weather finally turning, right? Which it usually hasn't. That's It's usually horrible opening day and for the first couple of weeks. And this is the first year that I can remember in a long time where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I might go to some games in April if I can. Like I, I, if I, if I'm able to like April baseball sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so, it'll, it'll be interesting. And, and I, yeah, I, I experienced that firsthand at uh, one of the blogs with balls in Chicago where, where our friend Wade Tonkin from Fanatics took me to Wrigley for my first game at Wrigley. Great seats. And like it was April and I was woefully under layered terrible. and just like, yeah, like <laughs> I'm enjoying this, but sort of kind of not, you know, yeah. So a couple of, a couple of questions. One we're, we're talking about, um, I guess your internal companies and, and, you know, managing the employees, but, um, how are your clients uh, adapting to this? Right. It's one thing for your internal stuff, but also what you just spoke about, about you live in New York and we we're talking about, I lived in New York and talking about Chicago, places like this to talk about the overhead of traveling, the overhead of maintaining offices. So, I mean, there's, there's this trickle down that just never seems to end. So first, I guess, you know, how are the clients dealing uh, with what's going on? Has that been a challenge? Because you said, hey, I don't need to worry about a couple months from now, but there's probably an expectation from them. You better start worrying about us six months from now. So I, I so that's a great, it's a great question. Um, I think clients are going through the same journeys that we all are, right? Trying to figure out what their back to office plan is, what the future of of their work situation is going to be. I mean, I will say that, you know, we just like any, any other advertising agency has, we've doubled down on, um, around the rigor of working with clients in a remote environment, clients that we haven't been able to see, to go out to dinner with, to have lunch with, to be in meetings face to face. Um, so, the, the dynamic has changed a bit because again, it's, it's very two dimensional right now through the screens. But if I, I, I would venture to say without any way of being able to qu quantify this, obviously the effort that we've put in that people like me and Kyle, and I'm sure a lot of other people have put in over the last year is 
probably one and a half, two times more than it might normally be because we're not wasting time on airplanes. We're not wasting time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Where we're, where we're burning calories is making sure that every day we are demonstrating our commitment to our clients because we feel physically disconnected from them. So we're, we're compensating for that by being extra connected in every other way. So I think from a, from a client service perspective, I think we've, the, the industry has done a, a, a good job as far as from, at least from where I sit. Um, I think when, you know, going back to what our business, what our agency is going to do, what is, what it's the, what's the future of the work environment for agencies and what's our return to work plan. You know, we are in a client service business and our clients are going to uh, indirectly influence how we work in the future. They really are, you know, and that's just, um, that's a truth. Of course, we're going to do what's right for us and our people and keeping our people safe and happy and challenged and healthy and all those kinds of things. But um, clients have a big say in how we, uh, how we operate. I don't know, Kyle, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's, again, and you when you talk about these sort of like unknowns, it's, it's, you know, I, I can, I keep telling everybody from a internal cost standpoint, if there's one thing I know, it's that businesses don't like shave a line item off the budget and then race to add it back when they've shown <laughs> that they don't really like, yeah, we got by without it. But yeah, let's just go back to right. adding that huge multi-million dollar cost. It is curious to see, you know, in a lot of these cases where it's a client insisting that you be there. I think there'll be some corporate cultures that really do expect that and and others that are maybe more flexible. I'm curious from your perspective on the the distributed talent notion and and you know, have you guys, I know for us we've certainly already made a number of hires that aren't where they need to be. There was actually a, you know, guy we hired who I think might have been sort of planning to move from Chicago, coincidentally, down to Austin. And they just sort of were like, yeah, look, pump the brakes on that. If you want to stay in, like, we we don't have an office active right now, but how are you guys seeing that? And are you seeing positivity into, or like opportunity in that as far as letting people live where they want to live or being able to find talent that you wouldn't have had access to? A hundred, a hundred percent. So definitely not putting geographic um, restrictions on new hires. Um, the kind of rule of thumb that 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 I'm going off is as long as in the future where you are isn't prohibitive to you working with teams or with clients, I don't care where you are. But it's not practical to have somebody working on a client who's based in California who lives in um, Israel. It just doesn't make just from a time zone perspective. It just makes no sense. Um, but besides that, I don't really care. Um, and what it's done is it is uh, a lot. It it opens up the talent pool tremendously. So you have access to better talent. You have access to more um, diverse talent. So our the 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 candidate pipeline is more diverse. It's I just think it's better. It's more interesting. It pulls from different industries because it's not just hey this person has to be in. Uh, New York, Chicago, or Dallas, or LA, or whatever it may be. So I, I think it's I think it's great, and I work with people every single day, people who I talk to multiple times a day for the last nine months. Who, if you put a gun to my head, I can't quite remember where they are, what city they're in, and it makes no difference, no difference, zero difference. 
How do you think, uh, I've been, I was talking to a friend yesterday who does, you know, spent years with me at RGA at other agencies now, you know, is mostly kind of in the freelance mode. And he was sort of talking about the changing face of that even in different ways that, again, like oftentimes freelancers are expected to come in and here's a desk and all of these guys who are thrilled to not have to sort through that. And you just kind of, have you thought at all about, you know, like, I guess the way that some people frame this of like, if you were starting an agency from scratch today, some of the things that you might sort of, you know, location is obviously one, we would just sort of like change that thought. But even as we get into the role of office space and, and, you know, all of that, I mean, do you, are there any things you think of that you're like, yeah, if you were starting today, this, this norm in the industry, you would, you wouldn't worry about that or, you know? Yeah. I, th I think about it a lot, actually. I think because physical space is so, has historically been so important to how any business operate, most businesses operate. I think the um, being able to kind of blow up that whole paradigm uh, would be, if I were starting a business tomorrow, would be incredibly, I think it'd be very freeing because it would allow you to explore a lot of different talent and opportunities, et cetera. I also think it would be t kind of scary, right? Like I'm starting a business and I have nothing tangible, right? And office space is a signal of tangibility, right? Like it's a thing that I can point to and say, that's that's my business, that door, that office, that building, whatever. And that is uh, for people, especially for somebody my age, right? My late forties, it, it's, it, it is, it's, a, it's a completely different paradigm. Now, if you're younger than, than me, um, you may not have that kind of attachment to physical spaces or cities or things like that, which I think is awesome. And so I see a lot of entrepreneurs who are starting businesses or agencies who never make mention of where they're located or um, where their people are located, et cetera. I think it's incredible. I think it's a great opportunity. Yeah. yeah as a guy who you know, has had my own small shop for some time, and that was sort of a you know, we had a WeWork space, but that was a sign of legitimacy that we had an office. We had conference rooms. We had coffee <laughs> as opposed to when we first started out for the first two years, we were all remote and it didn't make a difference. And, you know, I missed some of that, but, you know, how do you go back? Like you said, that line item part. And speaking of um, the way business is done and, and the way uh, offices are run, you went, I would say viral, uh, not not too long ago for... Um, an antidote, really, and it wasn't even that long uh, in terms of you know, it wasn't a huge medium post. Two hundred and thirty-five words. Yeah, which is the, which is the part that amazed me the most. Tell us, tell us about your your virality. Virality is that the right word? <laughs> I don't know. That sounds that sounds a little dirty. I don't know. Tell different. us about yeah. Tell us about this. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was almost exactly two years ago. Actually, it was uh, May of. It, you know, it doesn't feel like that long ago, but no, I, like 2020 was just a wash. It like, doesn't it's to me either, especially because I, 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 I get emails about it weekly still two years later. But um, I, um, I came home from a trip. Uh, I'd been traveling a ton, came home from a trip on a Friday afternoon from San Diego and had, to, had my kids for two days before I had to get on a plane Monday morning to go somewhere else. And a, a very well, well-meaning, well-intentioned colleague uh, sent me a note uh, on Saturday morning and said, "Hey, can you connect about this thing? It was a it was a new business thing." 
And I just didn't want to. I just didn't want to talk about it. I like hadn't been home in a week. I had my kids for two days. Just wanted to like just be lazy. And I sat there like struggling with how to say no. Like, let's talk about it next week. Which of course I did. And he was like, Yeah, cool, whatever. Like, I don't like, yeah, it's fine. No big deal. But um, this all happened while I was literally sitting in bed drinking coffee. And I I thought, like, oh, what a what a good lesson to learn. Like he I just said no to him and that we could do it next week. And he didn't ask me why he didn't need an excuse. He was very gracious about it. And I had my computer with me in bed, sadly. And um, I wrote this LinkedIn post just as I do often with no intention of anything. And uh, like two days later, I went back onto LinkedIn and I had like all these notifications. I was like, fuck is going on and I guess what happened I guess what happened was um I think it was working mother magazine picked it up and 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 ran a story about it I think which led to um USA Today running a story about working mother running a story about it and uh boy you really learn the power of like traditional media when USA Today mentions your name it's like you have no idea how your world turns upside down immediately. And so anyway, um, this post started getting shared and et cetera, et cetera. And um, USA Today called and Good Morning America and CNN and CNBC and the New York Post and the New York Times and the, the, was it the Times of London, one of them. Anyway, and it just went, it just went all over the place. And um, I think it's been liked nearly 60,000 times and shared like 11,000 times. Uh, and it was just this wild moment where I was just literally just sitting there pecking out a couple words and uh, just the right person saw it and it just kind of blew up and exploded. And um, yeah, at least once or twice a week, I still get a note from a stranger, you know, random stranger about it, like asking about it or commenting about it or whatever. So it was why are you, are you, are you the de facto executive, uh, father, uh, go-to personnel? Is it, so anything? Yeah, yeah I think I am, which my friends love to kill me, <laughs> kill me about. There was, there was a, there was a headline in some paper or somewhere. I don't remember what it was. And it was, said something like single dad of the year or exact single executive dad of the year or something. And I was like, Oh, please don't let anybody. <laughs> And sure enough, like somebody, one of, one of my friends found it and it just, you know, just endless harassment, endless, endless. That's too much. So so back to the actual point of, uh, you know, those 250 words, what was it? The the point was, the point was that we are all grownups who, um, have complicated and, um, uh, fulfilling complicated lives. We have a lot going on being a father or not being single or not doesn't really matter. And that we should treat each other professionally like grownups. And, uh, if Don, you and I work together, I trust that you're going to get the job done and that you're going to keep your promise to me. And my, uh, my commitment is that I'm going to keep my promise to you and we're going to be held accountable to each other. And if we trust each other, there's no reason for me to know that you're going to, take uh, an afternoon off and go to your one of your daughter's soccer games or that you've got a dentist appointment or uh, that um, 
you just don't feel like reading emails one night or on an airplane. And that was the whole point. Like, I'll get my shit done. You get your shit done. We're all grownups. Let's treat each other like grownups. And let's let's not um, micromanage people. That was kind of the, the message. Very simple. And, 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 and how sad is it that this has to be articulated and that it becomes news for you saying, so, get your work done? Who cares about the process? Like, so the, the, really interesting, the really interesting conversations I had in the aftermath, which I thought were, were the most fulfilling, were with uh, female women leaders in business. And what we talked a lot about was like, women have been saying this for years. Like, for years, like this is not, I, it was hardly an original thought by any stretch of the imagination. It was very pedestrian, in fact. Like you said, like how sad that we have to say this. What was shocking to me was that it took the, uh, it's almost like you had to catch people by surprise by having a man say it, which was so, so sad that like when a man said it, a man in, you know, in, validated in, a, in a position it. of power, right, said it, all of a sudden people were like, that is brilliant. And how, and, and I've talked about that a lot, like what a pathetic kind of statement on, on where we're currently at, you know, in, uh, in things that like a thousand really smart, powerful women can say it. And one dude just randomly spit something out on LinkedIn and, and suddenly everybody's, you know, can't stop, you know, patting them on the back for it. So anyway, yeah. Amazing. Well, speaking of traditional versus non-traditional and male versus female, uh, we always do like to talk about the events themselves. And I know we talked about it a little bit in the beginning about how you got there, but as a guy that came from a traditional, um, agency structure world, um, first of all, we, we always apologize about our name, uh, (laughs) in the, in these things, but you know, here's a guy coming with, like you said, Spencer getting iced and, you know, so-and-so doing this and -and so-and-so doing that and people passing out in the bathroom from the Jeremiah weed. Um, you know, what, what, what was your takeaway from there with these, you know, it was kind of a ragtag group of, you know, outsiders that were really trying to make an imprint, not just on Wrigley field, but on, you know, the media and the marketing industries. I'll tell you it's something we talked about earlier. Um, and it did stick with me. I remember being like, I don't really know what I'm doing today. I don't know where I'm going today or what any of this is or who I, I don't think I knew anybody really. And I remember when I walked in and there was a big, there was all this Gillette signage and and I was like, oh, they, they got sponsorship for this from like a real company. Like one of the most famous brands in the world is paid money. And it was probably, I'm sure it was a small amount, but like paid money to have a presence in this room of 150 ragtag kind of nobodies at the time, right? For the most part. And I thought like, oh, these these guys are onto something. And, you know, my recollection was the kind of the convergence of sports and media and technology and entertainment. And, um, I just thought it was even, I remember even thinking I'm, I'm the furthest thing from a futurist, but I even remember thinking at the time, these, these guys are onto something that feels ahead of their time. Um, and, you know, even if you think back, what was it, do, what would you say, 2008, 2009, like, yeah. sure, Twitter existed and Facebook existed, but Instagram didn't exist as far as I remember. Um, and Twitter existed, but it was yeah. this, right? Yeah. It was nothing. And um, it just felt like you you were all a- ahead of something that was coming. And you were, clearly. It almost feels like 
I think we've said it before, like it was like influencer marketing before yeah. influencer marketing to, to really, um, you know, generalize. But you mentioned the names that you mentioned, guys like Spencer and Sarah, who's on TV every night. I see her. I, I right. see her every, every day on TV and on Twitter. I'm like, that's so great. It's so awesome. She's like famous. It's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, so it's always, it's always nice hearing that other perspective. Like, it's the kind of like, what were you doing there again? <laughs> like, there were a lot of them. And the, I didn't mean that in the nicest way. Obviously, we yeah, wanted you there no. and you contributed. But there were some people who were like, what was your role again? Okay, okay. Then what did you take away? Because we were all different. I mean, even last last week when we talked with Megan Huter, who was talking about women's coverage and women's sports, you know, she was like, you know, I was afraid that I was going to be laughed out of the room because, well, you know, it's a you know, a very specific group that I'm talking to the week before we had Sid Ziegler talking about um, LGBTQ issues and the same thing as you kind of came into it, not really knowing it was okay. There was still some discomfort for them, um, right. you know, fitting in, but overall, you know, kind of accepted. And it goes back to, you know, what you've been harping on the whole time. It's just, you know, humanizing people and whether they're employees or social media figures or whomever it might be. Well, and, and, and I think, you know, what's, what's really nice for me to see is a lot of those people, including the two of you, I can, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of your careers, obviously, but I've, you know, I know you guys and I can see a very strong dotted line between, you know, that day at Wrigley to today, right? Like, I don't think it's an accident that the two of you are doing what you do. And I think it goes back, obviously, it, it predates when, when I met you guys. But um, it's nice that you were on to something and you continue and, and it's a path that you're still on. It wasn't just a, a flight of fancy, you know? Well, it's, it's interesting to, to sort of contrast that or to like put that up against what we were talking about before from like the the shift of the world where uh, breaking down of physical barriers right like right now hey i can go live in different places and i think part of what was going on was as we started to kind of break down some of the traditional like you were you know the qualification barriers that like okay and qualifications might be your relationships it might be your education it might be that you're a woman trying to break through as a sports writer and it was this these early days of of what i would always kind of tell people was like if you're passionate about something like just that you want to do just start putting signals out to the universe like don't yeah. wait for somebody to give you the job just start writing about the thing that you're into and other people who are into that will find you and these communities are sort of springing up and and i think that was you know a lot of these people that you talked to i mean it was at its best a lot of times that sort of Hey, look, there's no, a lot of the reasons that we haven't been able to do this or a lot of the things that would stand between us and being able to have what, you know, live the way we want, get what we want are, are going away. And, and, and now they're completely blown open. Right. And in a lot of cases, different places, you're better off being a sole creator, building a brand yourself than trying to go do the same thing. I mean, you know, same thing I, somewhere else. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So I read this, I read a book a few weeks ago, uh, by, uh, Jeff Tweedy, the musician, Chicago musician, um, called How to Write One Song. And I'm not a songwriter. I'm not a musician, nothing. Somebody recommended this book. And it was one of the most insightful, delightful books. I read it in about one and a half sittings. And it's it, it is how to write a song. It's his process for writing a song. But it's really about how to kind of do anything. Uh, any, anything that involves writing or creativity. And the, one of the big things I took away from it was 
two big things I took away from it. One is intentionality that you have to, you have to put signals out. You have to try things. You have to be vulnerable. You have to say things out loud that you wish for. Otherwise the universe can't pick up on it. Right. And related to that is um, serendipity, which is uh, the more you put those signals out, the more collisions that can happen in a good way, good collisions. And, um, uh, and the more serendipitous moments that could happen, which could lead to another thing, which five steps later lead to success, whatever that is. And so um, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I don't understand people who have a passion, but are passive about it. Like you've got to be, you've got to put yourself out there. I understand it's, it's because it's very vulnerable to put yourself out there, but man, I just feel like if there's ever been a time to put yourself out there and, and, and put your thoughts out into the world, uh, now is it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I would just use myself and this, what we're here talking about is the example of, I mean, you know, we've talked on previous shows, Don and I sort of came together at a, focus group i think i got connected into via noah Breyer yet again but like any espn i was yard barker diana klutchkova and uh the the net net is look we we got to know each other we hatched a thought around having a sports media blogging conference and the way i operated back then and still do oftentimes I would have planned it to death for three years and it would have just died and we never did it. Me too. Don, Same thing. Don was the guy who was like, hey, I already told 50 people we're doing this, so I guess we're doing this. And it was like, it was too late. But then I, need, then, I, then I need the detail guys to come in with ideas. Now, what are we going to do? Like, okay, and, all right, and let's the do same it. thing happened with this podcast where it was, was Don going, <laughs> we should do this. And then it was like, I scheduled the first one. And you're like, shit, I, I guess we're doing it. And then, yeah. you know, and so I, I you know, I, I feel like in my younger years, I was maybe a little bit more, willing to do that. And then you, you start to feel like you have more at stake, whether that's real or not. Your risk profile changes over the years. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so, but, but now getting back around to doing this and I, after years ago, having a email newsletter that was maybe, I don't know, I don't know if it was ahead of its time. I feel like email newsletters have always just sort of been there, but they're having their moment again with Substack and everything and just started writing again. You were so excited to get that, 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 uh, Kyle Bunch FYI out, weren't you? I, I, well, I'm not trying to plug it. I'm just, it was more. (laughs) No, I don't mean plugging. I mean to actually get it out and to do the newsletter because you've been talking about newsletters for 10 years. (laughs) And and, and there's a great, I think it's, uh, is it Ira Glass that talks about the gap between like when you start these things, like what you want it to be and what it is, there's going to be a gap. And the gap is good because That's right. it means you have taste on the one hand and you know what good looks like, but you've got to keep grinding because you won't close the gap without it. I and, also and- think, I also think um, this podcast is probably a great example, right? A lot of the stuff that you guys probably do together is a good example. You're not, this podcast is by no stretch, no means you taking all of your eggs and putting it into this basket. So, it's like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. Let's do, if, if we decide after five of them, they suck and we don't feel like doing it anymore, we just won't do them anymore. Like nobody, nobody's going to, nobody's going to like uh, lose their home over this. Right. And we so, ended up doing a conference for 10 years. It just kept, well, right. try it again. So, <laughs> so I, I think also like there's a, um, there's something to be said for like, you know, diversifying, if you think of it as a portfolio, like kind of diversifying your portfolio and not looking at everything as having to be a money maker. Some things you just do because they're fun or they're interesting or you meet new people 
or it helps your profile to make money. It's a loss leader for making money somewhere else, whatever. So, um, yeah. And, and I think the, the, in the permanence to some extent in a, in a good way or not the permanent, but like the, you don't know where it's going to lead. And I would go back to what you're talking about with your LinkedIn post. Like that still finds its way to people to this day, you know, yes. and it creates these connections and maybe some of them have turned into something big for you or just a conversation that was enlightening with somebody on another part of the world. But can I, I, can I give you know. a quick, a, a super quick anecdote? So, uh, when I was interviewing for the job that I'm in now, I was, uh, talking to a very senior woman, uh, at, uh, within publicist group. And she, uh, we were talking about work-life balance and all these things. I, I don't bring it up anymore to people. I don't proactively bring it up. And we're talking, talking, talking. And she said, you know, gosh, that reminds me so much of this thing that I read. Um, like it was like a year ago. It was by this guy. I don't know who he is, like some random guy. And um, it, and she started to like, kind of like uh, semi-quote it back to me. And I literally finished her sentence. And she's like, oh, you read it too. I was like, actually, I wrote it. She's like, oh my. she like put it. She's like, oh my God, I'm so fucking embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. But like those things happen all the time. It's wild. Yeah. So serendipitous. So. That is fantastic. We usually like to wrap it up yeah. offering some advice for people coming up. But I think you and Jeff Tweedy uh, took good care of that for us. So who's going to be the Bears quarterback this year? Well, I think we know. <laughs> I think we know, unfortunately, who the Bears quarterback is going to be this year. I think, I think, I think unfortunately, it's, it's, it's going to be uh, Mr. Dalton. Uh, I think the question is going to be. Who's going to finish as the Bears who's quarterback? Who's going to be the Bears quarterback at the end of the year? I have no idea. And who's going to be the Bears quarterback next year? Because God help our fan base if it's next year. What a, what a, what a, what a disastrous quarterback run we've had since, like, Jim McMahon. No, <laughs> no. Before you know, Jim McMahon was not a very good quarterback either. To be honest, with you. I, it's funny. My favorite quarter, my favorite Bears quarterback of all time. People think I'm joking. I'm not being like facetious. Um, is Rex Roseman? Like he kind of knew what he was. He like knew what he was, and we went and we went to the Super Bowl. I mean, we took him to the Super Bowl. Rexy, Rexy, right there. Rexy, Rexy, man. My kid had a Rex Grossman. When my older kid had a Grossman jersey. Like that's how much I love it. I love it. Love it. Ian Stone, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this one was really kind of we were talking about freewheeling it, Kyle. I think we freewheeled it, but this was this was a good fun hour for us. I appreciate yeah, it. Those are the best me. ones. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Ian. It was great to catch up. It's been way too long. All right. And so, well, not next week. I'm, I'm going to Disney. I'll let you know if I survive. Uh, but in about two weeks, we'll be back. Hopefully a new fun guest. Ian Sohn, thank you very much. Kyle Bunch. Till two weeks from now, I'm Don Povey. It's the OGs.